Our theological affirmation is that God never changes. Our view of God may very well change. As we read Nahum this morning, I invite you to consider how it is that our understanding of God, our vision of God, our view of God may well have changed over the years. In the third verse of our opening hymn, we sang, God reigns o'er time and space in history's bygone days. God reigns o'er time and space, o'er galaxy and sun. Through timeless years, the cosmos hears the heavenly music run. I was thinking about those pictures we've seen recently from the James Webb telescope peering into the beginnings of a 15 billion year galaxy. And I've been reading about the theological implications and people asking, how does this change our understanding of God? I believe our understanding of God continues to evolve I believe God never changes. We consider that this morning as we look at an ancient word from Nahum written perhaps 2,700 years ago. All this summer, I have been talking to you about the history of ancient Israel. I'm sorry. Some of you are not into this. You have told me so. You're tired of hearing about the Assyrians who destroyed Israel 721 years before Jesus, and the Babylonians who sacked the city of Jerusalem in 587. You don't need to hear the names of Tiglath-Pileser III or Shalmaneser V or King Nebuchadnezzar ever again. I get it. I, I really do. But I want you to understand that the value of reading these minor prophets these words from antiquity is that while this is ancient history for us, boring, seemingly irrelevant, irrelevant more to some of you than to others of us, it was headline news when it was first spoken. One commentary says, as is typical of Hebrew prophecy, Nahum's words were prompted by the dramatic events of international history. The Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. The writers were not sequestered in some ivory tower removed from the real world. They were not writing some supernatural text meant only to guide souls to heaven. The prophets were reading the newspapers of their day, checking their iPhones, as it were, listening to the radio, getting eyewitness reports in real time, frightening life-threatening events were happening in their lives, and the prophets, who were just as human and just as frightened as the rest of the people, believed they had a calling to speak a word from God as best they understood God at the time. We can learn from how they responded to their history. We can even learn this morning from a harsh an unforgiving prophet named Nahum. You see, Assyria for Nahum was not a Bible name, not a biblical name for people living in Samaria. It was the neighboring country whose king was even more ruthless than Vladimir Putin and whose invasion and violence was just as devastating as what the Ukrainians are experiencing today. And where was God in all of that? You see, it's not an irrelevant question. 
I don't care how old it is. There's nothing outdated about looking at the world around you with all the justified fears and asking the bigger questions. Why is this happening? What will become of us? God? Where is God in all of this? Now, I understand more about the Assyrian threat than some of you do because some of you are not old enough to know what the Cold War meant to American children growing up in the 1960s and 70s. I'm old enough to know what the Cold War meant to children growing up in the United States in the 60s and 70s. The threat from Russia, some called it an evil empire. The threat was real and it was imminent. Any day, they might initiate the codes, launch the missiles, invoke thermonuclear war, and the best we could do was take cover under a school desk. I was raised on the anxiety of the so-called Red Scare and a looming Russian provocation, and I missed the worst of it. In October 1962, just before I was born, the threat came to a knife's edge in the Cuban Missile Crisis when President John F. Kennedy stared down the Soviet First Secretary Nikita Khrushchev and backed the world away from what could have been true nuclear annihilation. I didn't understand all the words, but they filled the airwaves of my childhood. A kind of low-grade nervousness tainted the six o'clock evening news. Kids talked about it at school. It was the subject of countless sermons, Bible-believing preachers everywhere reading the headlines into the Bible's so-called signs of the times. And it was fodder for many of the evangelical lessons of my youth group days. Some leader would say, some youth group leader would say, the Russians are atheists, and if they took over, would you have the courage to stand for Christ, even if they put you in prison? Even if they killed you, would you stand for Christ? Those were the subjects of my youth group days. Historians tell us that the Cold War began at the end of the Second World War and lasted until Ronald Reagan stood in West Berlin in 1987 and boldly dared the Soviet General Secretary, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This tension with Russia, tension with Russia, dominated U.S. politics and religion, shaping our culture for half a century. And like some of you, Amy and I are the products of the theology of that culture. It was a theology of fear, a theology of nationalism and militarism, a theology of apocalyptic, apocalyptic eschatology, which means, you know, the world exploding in flames. And in Israel, 2,700 years ago, the Assyrian threat had lasted for 300 years. Even though my peers had missed the worst of the tensions, one loved to wear his Kill a Commie for Mommy t-shirt. It offended me, but he loved to wear it. And another loved to boast he'd be better dead than red. You see, they hated the Russians. And when Nineveh was destroyed 2,700 years ago, the event that would prove the end of the great Assyrian Empire, Nahum could hardly contain his own joy. 
Now, not long before Nahum's time, the prophet Isaiah had controversially suggested that God was using the Assyrians. Isaiah dared to suggest that the pagans were, in God's words, the rod of my anger. The club in their hands is my fury. That was Isaiah's theology. Nahum, he was having none of that. For centuries, this enemy had threatened the peace of his land, and the prophet was glad to sing God's praise for Assyria's demise. His short oracle, an oracle which had become a specific genre of writing in Jewish, uh, in Jewish writing, his oracle was unrelenting. Now, an Old Testament seminary professor of mine taught me that every time we read a word of judgment by one of the prophets, there is a corresponding word, at least a glimmer of hope, a final word of God's mercy. I'm not sure Dr. Cowan ever read Nahum. I don't find any compromise whatsoever. Nahum's oracle is brutal, and it ends without a hint of divine forgiveness. There is certainly no forgiveness from Nahum, who says, there is no assuaging your hurt, Assyria. Your wound is mortal, and I'm glad. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? End of the chapter. Good riddance, and God bless America. You know, for Nahum, God bless Israel. It was that kind of nationalism in his theology. It is ancient history, I understand. But a lot of preachers who long to be today's prophets are using the international events we see, political, religious, meteorological, you know, the weather, twisting them by their own pride and bias and writing theologies that are just as partisan and just as prejudiced, just as xenophobic, just as unforgiving and vengeful as Nahum's. Nahum, who had a burden, he just had to get off his chest. But last week, if you'll remember, the prophet Micah asked, uh, uh, taught us to ask, who is a God like Yahweh? And Christians dare to say, Jesus has shown us that God. As my seminary theo uh, theology professor, Frank Tupper, used to say, I believe in God because I believe in Jesus, not the other way around. In other words, without Jesus, we could not know who God is. So as you read Nahum's blistering, biased theology, here's the question for you. What is happening in the world today? What do you see? And will you let your bias of those events shape your theology? Or will Jesus teach you of a different God altogether? May it be so. At the beginning of our staff meeting each week, we share prayer concerns that we know about from within the congregation and from within our own personal lives. Some years ago, we would send cards from our staff meeting simply saying that we had prayed for you. I think we need to revive that old tradition. I don't know where it dropped off, but 
I'm thinking I'm going to get some new cards printed. We had these cards printed with the church logo on the front and then blank space to write a note and for everyone to sign the card. And at the bottom of the card, we had printed these words, bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. Almost two years ago, when I was facing lung cancer and surgery, I wrote to you to, tell you to tell you about this in a letter. One paragraph from the letter read, Because you have been our extended family for these many years, I wanted to share some recent troubling news with you. I'm a very firm believer in this biblical truth. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. Because the role of pastor is such a public one, it is sometimes difficult to know how much to share. I trust full disclosure is the best path. And I closed out my letter to you explaining the details of my surgery and the time that I would be away to recuperate, and I closed this way, thank you for bearing this burden with me. Nahum has given me an opportunity this week to consider the burdens that we carry. A burden is how Nahum begins his rant. I spent much of the week frustrated with his biased rant and the way he didn't represent God in the ways that I understand God is at work in the world, a God of second, third, fourth chances, a God of love and mercy and grace, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, period. But when I saw Nahum, in light of his own pain and in light of his own burden, I decided to grasp for grace. In preaching, I always ask myself the question, so what difference is this going to make for those sitting in the pew? What's the take-home, if you will? Here's the take-home in the form of a question. What burden or burdens are you carrying? And is your pain causing you to lash out, to say things that you don't mean, to utter words that as soon as you say them, you wish you could call them back in? Does your burden cause you to treat others or treat yourself in ways that are counter to who you understand God calls us to be? And then in listening to the rants of others, can you bring yourself to step back and instead of entering the rant or countering the rant, can you pay attention to what burden or pain may be causing this person to be so vicious? Now, given the amount of vitriol in our society and in our systems today, I think we can assume people are carrying a lot of burdens. People are holding a lot of pain. Otherwise, why would we be speaking to each other in ways that we are speaking to each other? Why would we be treating one another the ways that we are treating one another if it wasn't coming out of some source of pain and burden within us? We would all do well to sit 
for just a minute in our own pain and consider the pain of others. Take a breath. Enter some silence. Pause in self-reflection. Squelch the need for revenge. Practice turning the other cheek. Seek the welfare of all. And when we do disagree, for we will disagree, do so in a spirit of love. Listen attentively. Listen not while forming your response, but just listen for the sake of listening to another's pain. You've heard the quote, Everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind always. From our litany this morning, just some of the burdens we are carrying individually and collectively. COVID still. Monkeypox. War. Inflation. Climate change, heat waves, historic storms, bitter partisanship, gun violence, mass shootings. And add to those in our litany our grief, our lonesomeness, our isolation, family squabbles and hurt feelings, depression, anxiety, cancer, illness, surgery, recovery, financial concerns. Our burdens are many. Maybe that explains why we're so awful to each other. And then when one bur burden mounts atop another, Riding the struggle bus is real. So the question becomes, what do you do with your burdens? Bear them alone? Rant and rave? Become more isolated? Let them breed bitterness? Let me suggest a more excellent way. Let us bear one another's burdens. You don't have to carry this alone. It's one of the main reasons we do this in community. It's one of the main reasons I continue to believe in church, precisely because we can bear one another's burdens here. We are not alone, but more and more people are privatizing their burdens, and I don't think this is healthy. I blame social media a bit for making us believe that people's lives are perfect and we're the only ones with burdens. We all have them, and they often seem to come in waves, don't they? Let us be there for one another. Let us be here for one another, trusting that God is with us, bearing us up in ways that bring hope and life and healing can I just say, 
Don't be like Nahum. Bitter and representing a vengeful God. Let your pain, let your burden teach you a measure of grace. Bear one another's burdens. It is the calling of the church. May we live up to it this day. May it be so. Amen. Join me as we pray together. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. We are tired, O oh God. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. We pray especially and specifically today for the most tired among us. For those that are living in their car for those addicted to a substance to numb their pain, for those trying to decide whether to pay their power bill or buy groceries because they can't do both, for those for whom death has taken its toll on living, for those who worry and worry and worry some more. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Let that be truth, O oh God. And may we create the kind of space around us that people would recognize in us a place of rest, sanctuary, healing, hope. Amen.